Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Our businesses, they are our babies. And so we nurture them. And sometimes what I see women doing is cycling all of their profit back into the business. And that is an incredibly risky thing to do. And so a really smart thing to do is say, hey, I'm going to sliver off some of my profits in every month that I can and get some of that money diversified. I like to compare it to dating. It's like playing the field. Like it's like dating a whole bunch of people. I date men, so I'm going to use men as my example. But like you can date one guy who's maybe like a little bit more exciting, but like he disappears for a month at a time. You can date one guy who's, you know, a little bit boring. He wants to make you watch like a baseball documentary every Sunday. But like, you know, here's the great thing about these guys. I don't have to get married to either of them, right? right. <laughs> sometimes this one is good and sometimes this one is good. And so it's just like playing the field. We just need to diversify, spread our assets. <laughs> You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Hola, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice, and you're listening to episode 98 
how investing in entrepreneurship can help you reach rich auntie status with Amanda Holden, investing expert and founder of the Dumpster Dog blog. Just wait until you find out the story behind this name. Now, after spending six years working in investment management, Amanda realized that helping rich men get richer was not going to be it for her. Now she teaches women how to use money as a tool to build wealth. Her goal is to democratize and deliver this vital education to those previously left out of these conversations. You can follow Amanda on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn, and we've included all of the links so you can follow her in the episode show notes. In this episode, we're going to be covering Amanda's journey to entrepreneurship, how she turned her practical work skills into a friggin' amazing business. And we're also going to talk about what you can do as an entrepreneur to make sure that future rich auntie you is fully taken care of and can go and live their best life thanks to planning ahead. Now, we're also going to talk about the steps around investing, how to get started, what you should look for when it comes to investments, and much more. So if you're ready to become the fabulously wealthy, rich Thea that I know that you can be, don't change the channel. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. First off, when I first encountered you on social, I saw your Instagram handle, Dumpster Doggy. And we have to talk about that because I was just like, what the fuck is happening here? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. So why don't we start off with you kind of introducing yourself to the audience? And who is this person behind Dumpster Doggy? Yeah, sure. Well, hi, everybody. Dumpster Doggy is not my birth certificate name, if anybody's curious. My name's Amanda. I'm an investing expert. And if there is one piece of unsolicited business advice I get more than any other business advice, it's to ditch the Dumpster Doggy name. (laughs) It's so memorable, though. It was a nickname I had acquired along the way. And in particular, during this stage in my life when I was really getting my financial shit together personally, you could probably imagine the origin of such a nickname, but it really came about during a period of my life when I decided, you know what? I really don't like my job. I want to get the fuck out of here. And so I was like, I have to do every single thing in my power to save up enough money to leave this job that I don't love. 
that I don't like, to be totally honest. And so I just went through like a nine month period, eight month period where I was so scrappy about saving money. And one of the many things that I did at the time I was working in investment management with pretty much all men, it was a predominantly male department that I worked in. And something that I had noticed was, you know, all these guys had a bunch of extra food lying around all the time. And so if somebody had a chicken salad sandwich they weren't going to eat, I'd be like, hey, bro, pass that (laughs) over. A nice way to say it was I was living off the excess of others. And it is those same coworkers, mainly the ones who knew what I was doing. My higher ups did not know that I was saving up all my money so I could quit and leave forever. But my friends knew what I was doing. And so they started very lovingly calling me dumpster dog. (laughs) And so, you know, when I left work and I left to go travel, I thought that I was going to leave the world of money management altogether. I ended up coming back to this space just thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe my work here isn't done. I've been teaching my girlfriends about all of this overly complicated stuff that they never received an education on. And so maybe there's more I can do. And so when I first came back, I just started like a really thrown together janky blog called the Dumpster Dog Blog, where I just kind of recounted my stories of me saving money, but then also providing investing education as well. Got it. Okay. That is fascinating. And I can't wait to dive further into this story. But I just want to highlight like, one of the things that I love about you is financial comedy. Didn't know it was a thing until I encountered you. That's number one. Amazing. And I love that you call out the bullshit of like the super broiness that is personal finance. Like, and you know, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I feel like there's a lot of even like, white women who embody this like bro culture in personal finance. And I don't fucking get it. Like, why is this a thing? And so I love that you're like, so anti that. Well, yeah, I mean, I hate it too. So (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of the worst. And I was really stewing in it. And when I worked in investment management, I saw the type of people that were in the rooms where this type of information was being discussed. And it was predominantly men and then women who wanted to play the men's game. And so that's who ends up holding the keys to this information. And it's a huge problem. And it's really the foundation of my business is witnessing firsthand who has access to this information and who doesn't. And it's the very reason that I decided to come back to this space at all. Because what I don't necessarily like intrinsically care about is Roth IRAs or index funds. What I care about is using money as a tool to create a really cool life and helping others to do the same and to help them navigate an overly complicated financial system. And really the only way I know how is to just try to make it fun. Like this stuff is already so crusty, dusty, boring, (laughs) intimidating. I mean, there's every word could be used to describe trying to navigate our financial system. And so to me, the best thing that you can do is to approach the topic with some levity and then also just remembering that jargon doesn't really help anybody. Yeah, I love it. And you do it so well. So kudos to you. Okay, so let's talk about your relationship with money growing up. What did you learn about money or not from your parents? And how did that lead into kind of who you are today? Yeah, so I feel so lucky in that growing up, my parents had 
very good relationships with money as far as I could tell. It was just like a nice, comfortable upbringing, which like, wow, how many people get to say that? Usually you're at one end of the spectrum or the other, whereas I grew up in a very comfortable situation, which is kind of interesting. And this isn't really the question that you asked me, but it is kind of interesting to be in such a position because what I never want to do is to tell somebody who did not grow up in a comfortable money situation how to feel about money. And so a lot of the work that I do is really trying to stay in my lane. And my lane is I am an investing expert. And so what you will never see me do is tell you how to spend your paycheck. What you will see me do is give you the tools you need to invest when you feel ready to do that. And so that's kind of like a little bit about like my background and like also then how I operate now. That being said, something that's interesting about growing up in a home situation that's comfortable with money is we actually didn't talk about money ever. Money was never talked about. And so I didn't know anything. And my father is actually a mathematician. And so while I was very good at math and we were often talking about math in my household, we were not talking about money in my household. And so even though I grew up in a comfortable situation, I still had to learn like everybody else. And that happened mostly when I started in the workforce. Even somebody that graduated with a degree in economics, which I did, you don't really learn about real life applications of money even getting an economics degree. And so it really kind of just happened for me working at an investment management firm. That's where I really learned everything. Yeah. I can attest to the fact that an economics degree doesn't mean shit because my husband has one too. And I'm the one who's teaching him about money. Oh boy, drag him. Yeah. <laughs> he knows a love now. Okay. So let's talk about you. Now you're in your career, you majored in economics, you end up in investment banking, right? First off, was that your intention? Was it not? And then how did you come to the realization that you're like, fuck this job. I need to do something else. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't quite investment banking. It was investment management. So managing money for either high net worth individuals or major pension plans or endowments or whatever it is. Okay. When I graduated from college, I was like, I need a job. And so I get a job with an investment manager. And that was right before 2008, the stock market crash of 2008. And so it was a really interesting time to be working in investment management. Um, imagine. <laughs> yeah, some would even traumatizing time to work in investment management. I was still working as an associate at the time. And so for me, it was not as hard as for the people that were on the front lines talking directly with our investors. And that's a job that I moved into in 2010. And so I did end up being a face person for the firm. And that's predominantly when I was working with all men. They kind of poached me from this associate role. They were basically like, hey, we noticed you've been talking shit to all your coworkers all day. Why don't you get on the phones and talk some shit to our clients? And I was like, <laughs> okay. And so they kind of just like threw me into the deep end. And I was 25 at the time, one of very few women in the department, definitely the youngest by a lot. And so it was an extremely steep learning curve, but there's no better way to learn about the markets and learn about investing as having to talk about it day in and day out with people who are really going to challenge you on your opinions of these things. And so I stayed in that role for about four years until I got to the point where I was like, I actually do not like talking about money all day. This is not my calling. Helping rich men get richer. This ain't going to be it for me. 
that's not going to be it. And the firm that I worked at was also very rigid. So apart from even not loving the work I was doing, I found it to be a very toxic place to work, specifically as a woman. And don't even get me started on what it would have been like if I had children or I could not adhere to the 10-hour minimum a day schedule that they required. And so, yeah, I mean, it took about six years before I finally had the courage to be like, this can't be it. This really, really cannot be it for me. And so long answer to your question, which was like, no, I was just trying to get some work. I was just trying to get a paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that on a spiritual level. So thank you for your honesty. Okay. So you come to this realization, like, this is not it. What does your escape plan look like? Like, how did you manifest the opportunity to like, get the fuck out of this? You know, I was very lucky and I should address my own personal privilege up front in that I didn't have student loans. I was not taking care of anybody. I do not have kids. I'm very nimble. And that allows for a lot more risk-taking than if I was to have a family, for example, or if I did have a bunch of debt. And so for me, it was really a matter of just saving absolutely as much money as I possibly could before just basically pulling the cord on this job. And so that's what I did. And I really did not want to just move to another job that I didn't like. And so, And so it was my goal specifically to save enough money to be able to maybe not have to work for a little while while I figured out what was going to be next for me. And so instead of like trying to save up all of the money and look for new jobs, I didn't even know what I would do next because I didn't want to work in investment management anymore. And my skill set was so specific to the investment management industry, I didn't know what to do. My job was literally chatting up old rich dudes about the stock market. That was literally my job. And that was really the only transferable skill that I had acquired. And so like, if I didn't want to schmooze old rich guys all day anymore, then what did I have? Uh, You could be like a sugar (laughs) baby, maybe. I mean, like, (laughs) let's not pretend like I haven't considered it. Like, come on, no shade to that line of profession. But I was like, just pretty done with talking to old rich guys anyways. And so for me, it was just like really a matter of saving as much as I could and then just kind of taking the leap, not knowing what is going to come next, which again, is fair to say that it is both brave, but it's also something that can only happen if you're lucky enough to have some privileges and to have stability and have a family that if worse comes to worse, you can fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. So you live in New York City, right? So you were doing all this in New York City? That's true. Yeah, I moved to New York City two years ago. Okay. So where were you before? Where were you when you were working this job? I was in San Francisco when I was working. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's even more expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I was in San Francisco when I was working, but then I quit and then I traveled. And then after traveling, I was back in Portland. So I'm from Portland, Oregon, which is a much more affordable city. My rent in New York City is exactly three times as much as my rent was in Portland. I definitely made the decision to take my business to a place that was more expensive, which is something that you hear almost nobody within the personal (laughs) financial space ever recommending, but also like, this is where I want to be. And so I'm making it my priority. And that does come at the sacrifice of being able to spend on other things, but it's where I want to be. Yeah. Okay. So you formulate your exit strategy. You save up. Did you move back in with your folks at all to make this happen too? Or were you still like on your own? So 
when I moved back to Portland, I actually moved in with a girlfriend and I did live there rent free. And so I was with her for a bit. And then I was with my parents for a bit. And when I was basically starting a career over from zero, I was bartending. So I bartended for two and a half years as I got my entrepreneurial journey started. Mm -hmm. And so for anybody that thinks that they can just start it and not have any other sort of secure source of income, that probably wouldn't be my recommendation. I don't know how you would do that, whether that means maintaining a nine to five for a while or having to say, you know what, I'm going to have to do this other type of work. And so, you know, I was working in a bar four or five nights a week sometimes, and it was really exhausting. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, I feel like dealing with men and money all day probably sets you up to be able to deal with the bullshit that comes with bar customers, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) I would say that maybe I had a little bit too short of a fuse, which like my (laughs) bartending buddies were probably like, wow, why is she so sensitive? And it's like, you don't understand. You don't understand where it came from. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. That's awesome. And so I definitely see like you're willing to take some big risks. And so how did you actually come up with the idea that like, I'm going to spin my expertise into a business, right? Because I feel like a lot of people struggle with making the connection with what their skills are and how they can actually create a business out of them. Yeah. So that's a great question. I even start with my recommendation for anybody. And my recommendation would be that as an entrepreneur, you do actually have an obligation to fail. And what I mean by that is that whatever you think that you're going to do, your first idea is probably not going to be the thing that hits. You know what I mean? So like, for example, I started thinking that I would write a book on investing for women using comedy as the educational lens, was doing the blog, was doing writing. But with time, what I kind of ended up finding out, it's no matter how fun you try to make it, it's really hard to get people to read about investing because it's still sitting down to read about investing. And so... I started to quickly learn that it was actually my live teaching and my workshops that seemed to resonate a lot more with people. For whatever reason, if I can trap you in a room with me for an hour, you can't escape. We're going to get some shit done. And so I kind of over the course of a couple of years realized that, okay, so maybe what I thought this thing would be isn't really what my special sauce is. And I did fight it a little bit. But if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you just have to embrace it. You have to embrace it and and go where people want you. And maybe that's a compromise, maybe not. But it just is probably not going to be exactly what you thought it was at the beginning. And so I knew I had this information, but I didn't know exactly how to package it. In fact, like it seems like you have like conceptualized it and worked through it and had success as an entrepreneur much faster than I have. I feel like my entrepreneurial success has been pretty pretty slow. And well, girl, I've been at this shit for eight years. Don't let anybody get okay. you confused right here. <laughs> okay. I just make it look like it's easy, but it's, I know the struggle. Believe oh me. Oh my gosh. Well, and so, and you're really good about sharing like your personal success stories. Whereas I, I guess I'm just like a little bit apprehensive because it's hard to be a successful entrepreneur and I don't want to guide people into it recklessly because you can lose money and it is difficult. It is emotionally difficult. And so I just want to be always be really honest about what it is. And I don't want to lead people into entrepreneurship if it's not something that they have really considered both sides of. 
Yeah. No. And I think it's so important that you do highlight like both sides of that coin, right? Because like we think about all of the get rich quick shit that's out there on the internet. It's like the reason why you're unhappy is you fucking hate your job and go start a business and you're going to be earning seven figures in like six months. And it's just like, okay, pause. I don't know anybody that that's actually happened to. (laughs) And I know me, like I've been building online businesses since 2013 and I can fucking attest to the fact that nothing happens overnight. So like, let's not get it twisted. And I'm sure you'll agree with this. You work harder than a mother, like as a freaking entrepreneur, your hours are all over the place. You have all these expectations of yourself, right? You can't blame somebody else if shit doesn't work. It's all on you. And then you have to take risks like giving up those benefits of the nine to five. Now I I don't have a pension anymore, guys. I don't have like guaranteed employer match. There's a lot of shit you have to sacrifice. But if you don't actually know why you're doing it and you're just falling in love with this magical idea of entrepreneurship, you are going to find yourself sorely disappointed. Right. I love it when people ask like, oh my gosh, you're so lucky that you do work that you're passionate about. And on the one hand, yes. I mean, what I love about the work that I do is I like helping people and I like making people laugh. That is what I like. But that is 5% of what I do because you also have to literally do every other job, like every other job. Like I remember once I was working with a friend and I had mentioned that I I was getting some help doing some graphics. The woman that does my graphics is really great. And she was like, really? Why? It's like so easy in Canva. I just looked at her. I was like, I'm so tired and I do every job. I like just need to give one person one of these jobs. Right. (laughs) And like, I can poke around Canva. Sure. I can poke around Canva for four hours or I could pay somebody who could do it in one fifth of the amount of time that it would take me to put something even moderately comprehensible together. (laughs) Oh, I feel you, sister. And, you know, I think that is something that manifests in a lot of like new entrepreneurs is this idea that like we have to control all the things that nobody can do it as good as us. And I think that's a level of hubris, a level of just like control that you need to let go of in order to actually like survive this. And I'm curious, like I've had to battle through like limiting beliefs around the fact that I convinced myself for the longest time that as soon as I quit my job, like everything's going to dry up. All this shit that I've been building is just going to magically fucking disappear because that just makes so much sense, right? So what are some limiting beliefs that you kind of have to work through to get to a place where you're like... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. I can fucking do this. Yeah, and like in my situation was just so different in that like I feel like I made a very decisive decision to quit my job, but I kind of have been like stumbling through entrepreneurship. Like I never really like made a business plan. And I was like, here's how we're going to make it work. It kind of was more like years of testing out different things, seeing how I could help people, always leading with what is the educational experience that I want to provide to a person first? And then second, considering how that makes me money. And so I would say that I am like not a model for entrepreneurship in like overcoming limiting beliefs because I've taken it so slow from like literally zero. And to me, it felt like the only option after quitting a job that I hated so dearly. (laughs) And so I would say now, I mean, like, okay, interesting question. Like, who are you? My therapist? Yeah. Nowadays, like I would say that some of my limiting beliefs are just connected to whether or not I want to be in the public eye. Ah, yes. Right. Because we both have businesses that are intrinsically tied to social media. Right. And I think that we're all mature enough now to agree that there are both really wonderful things that come from social media. I have a business because of social media. I am able to reach women because of social media. But the flip side of that is you are now personally and professionally tethered to social media, which we just know is not very healthy. Yeah for a lot of reasons, but it's just so easy to get caught up in the negative things that are said about you, even though it could be one out of every 100 comments. And so, you know, that's one small thing. And it just seems very scary to me. I have like a little bit of like a moral dilemma with the responsibility that is having a large social media following. And so like, I feel for me, my blocks come in that way where I'm like, is this really what I want to do? And then I'm I'm probably doing less than I could be doing because of it. And so that's just one that comes to my mind. Yeah, (laughs) No, I can totally relate to that, especially like the burnout is real and you feel the need to like disconnect, but then it's like, okay, if I'm not connecting with people, if I'm not showing up, like what the hell is going to happen to this So it's like the chicken or the egg. Like, when are you allowed to take a break that's not going to be detrimental? How can people understand that, like, you are also a human and this is not just like a simulation, (laughs) you know? And you are so prolific on social media as well. 
Well, that's only because I have a team of people. Because if I was doing this shit myself, like, there's no way. I would have deleted my account like a year ago. <laughs> okay. So you see, like, that's like so helpful for even me to know because you were working in a similar space and it's so easy, like, for me to look at you and be like, gosh, you do so much. Like, I really should be doing more. And I don't actually post that often. I post once a week, maybe. And mm -hmm. that, that feels like a lot to me. <laughs> but yes, girl, you're doing all the things. <laughs> oh, man. But, and of course, there is always the comparison trap. And even if you think you've got a good handle on it, you're addressing it, you're calling it by name, it's pretty insidious and it can affect you and it can affect the way that you think about yourself and your business. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of struggle in that way where I'm like, Oh man, is this like, is this what I want? And mm -hmm. it's hard for me to know. I don't, I don't want to say I'm not ambitious because I also don't want it to sound like people that are hustling really hard to make it work or are ambitious are doing it wrong. Sometimes you got to hustle. Sometimes you got to be ambitious. But like, I don't know, like, like I said, I just want to help people and I just want to make people laugh. And so sometimes it's hard to keep going when like, you're like, Oh man, do I really need this to have that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I cannot empathize with you enough because I know exactly what you're going through. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to just like not have to fucking show up all the time. And for me, that looks like hiring a social media manager because I'm just like, look, I have a life, y'all. I have a husband. Like if I'm just out here chilling with y'all 24 hours a day, I'm going to get divorced. And then what the fuck? Like what's the point of all this, right? It's also, I think, about focusing your energy on like the shit that you absolutely 100% enjoy. Like, do I love showing up sometimes and like going live or whatever the fuck? I love that stuff. But creating like memes for social, like I just have more important things to do. You know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> yeah. I without everybody would appreciate just me focusing on the shit that has real impact. And like, we will keep you engaged in ways that just don't require a ton of my time. Yeah, it seems like you're doing a really good job in focusing on what matters. And, and I actually do think that I do as well. Like, and it's kind of interesting having like this take on entrepreneurship where I'm like, I don't, ha I don't think that I should be Oprah. I don't think that anybody needs, to, <laughs> like, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs in the back of their head, if they're being honest, like they want all the things. Yeah. And, I sometimes am like, I mean, I don't think that I need to be Oprah and I can't tell whether that makes me a good entrepreneur or a bad entrepreneur. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing we have to embrace is that everybody's journey is completely different the same yeah. way that your personal finance is personal. So yeah. And I think it's also really important for us to like remove the comparison trap opportunities there. So like when I'm following people that are consistently making me feel like I'm not fucking doing enough as a business owner, I'm like, you're going on mute for 30 days because I just cannot handle this yep. right now. Yeah. And it's okay. <laughs> totally. Okay. So I definitely want to tap into your expertise because you are an entrepreneur, you're an investing expert. And a lot of questions that I get for people who are thinking about doing this is like, okay, but like what happens to my 401k? So can we talk a little bit about like what our options are as entrepreneurs so that we are not working till 95 years old? Cause that is not a vibe, whether you have a nine to five or a business. It's, just, it's not a vibe. No. <laughs> yeah. We got to be prioritizing our badass future granny, abuela selves. So right. <laughs> right. And as an investing expert, really a lot of what I do is talk about retirement. I always feel like I am the 
I am retirement messenger, which can be tough at times because the reality is most people in this country are not in a place where they can be thinking about retirement. They're just trying to get by to next week, to next month. And I completely realize that investing is a privilege in that way. That being said, when we do have times of financial stability, we have to use that to the best of our ability to create stability for our future self as well. Like I always like to say that like we have a moral obligation to ourselves right now, but we also have a moral obligation to our future selves. It would be nice if like we lived in a country that had a much more humane system of taking care of its elders, but the reality is that we don't. And as much as I will fight for that, what we see happening is that elder women specifically live in poverty three times more than elder men, and it's even worse for women of color, so specifically Black women and Latino women. And so what I want to make sure that I am doing is giving women all of the tools they need so that when they are ready, they can easily make the decision to invest in their future selves. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. It's especially difficult if you are an entrepreneur or if you are self-employed because you don't have the benefit of having a workplace that helps you out with any of that stuff. You've got to do it all on your own. So just like you already wear every single hat and you're the marketing manager and you're the tax person, you are now also the benefits specialist. <laughs> and so... um but it's, but it's, it's absolutely something that you have to consider doing as a self-employed person. Do you feel like so many of the entrepreneurs that you meet or self-employed people that you meet, I think this is like especially true for women and maybe I'm generalizing, but our businesses and our projects, they are our babies, right? And so we nurture them. And sometimes what I see women doing is cycling all of their profit back into the business without slivering any of that off for themselves, which like to put it in terms of like just investing knowledge in general, like what do you think is the strongest company that you could invest in in the entire world? There's no right or wrong answer. Amazon. Amazon's probably right, right? And would you invest all of your money in Amazon? Absolutely fucking not. Because why? It would be too risky. But yet we do that with our own businesses. We invest only in our own businesses. And that is an incredibly risky thing to do. And so a really smart thing to do is say, hey, I'm going to sliver off some of my profits in every month that I can and get some of that money diversified. That's essentially what it is. It's diversification. It's don't put all your eggs in one basket, which I think is like such a, we need a better term for that. I like to compare it to dating. It's like playing the field. Like, it's like dating a whole bunch of people. I date men, so I'm going to use men as my example. But like, you know, you can date one guy who's maybe like a little bit more exciting, but like he disappears for a month at a time. You can date one guy who's, you know, a little bit boring. He wants to make you watch like a baseball documentary every Sunday. But like, you know, here's the great thing about these guys. I don't have to get married to either of them, right? right. <laughs> sometimes this one is good and sometimes this one is good. And so it's just like playing the field. We just need to diversify, right? Spread our assets. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You're taking me back to my college days. I'm not going to get into this. <laughs> well, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it really is as simple as that is like, Again, taking some of the money that you are earning and buying assets with it with the intention of converting it into wealth because income is not wealth, right? Income is money coming in, but that money can just as easily go right back out. And so 
really when we're talking about investing, that's it is just buying other companies who will help you then diversify your own personal portfolio and diversify some of the risk away from your own company. And then the rest of the stuff that we have to do around that concept is just logistics. Like what account do you use? Roth IRA or SEP IRA or solo 401k? How do you actually get that exposure to the market? Do you buy individual stocks? Do you buy funds? But really at its core, that's all we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But for somebody that is just getting started, the first step is finding an account that makes sense for you. So if you are investing for retirement, which is generally a very good first goal, because retirement is going to be the single biggest expense of our lifetimes. And so really what you want to try to do is to bake some saving and investing for retirement into every year that you possibly can. And so that's why we often hear like, start with retirement, start with retirement, because you can almost think of saving for retirement as if it's like, it's a date that you can crank in with your own saving and investing, right? Like if you can't afford to retire at age 80, then you can't afford to retire at age 50. It's a number that you have to pull closer and closer and closer to you through your own saving and investing. And so another word for retirement, financial freedom. And so when we are talking about the first place we invest, we generally tend to talk about retirement. And so for most people, you would open a retirement account. So like a Roth IRA or a SEP IRA or a solo 401k, if you are a self-employed person, all of those are great. You might want to talk with a tax specialist to make sure that you find the one that fits for you. But the most important thing to understand about all of these accounts is that they are just accounts. They are not investments. They do not generate a rate of return. A Roth IRA can hold cash. A Roth IRA can also hold investments. The investments themselves are going to be what generates a rate of return. And so you can almost think of an account, which... I do find this, that people get so hung up on the account decision that they never even get to the fun part, which is actually buying the investments within the dang account. And to me, I actually find that the incessant debate that happens within the personal financial rule on whether Roth accounts are better or 401k accounts are better is actually very unhelpful and that it just causes people to do nothing at all, when in reality, they're all fine. And so just very generally... What's important to understand about retirement accounts specifically is what the IRS is saying is like, hey, we are going to give you a tax benefit if you use one of these retirement accounts, if you invest within one of these retirement accounts. But then the flip side of that is that we get to write the rules for you. So that's why there's so many rules about who can use what when you can tap into that money, how much you can put into an account in any one given year. That's why all the rules, because guess what? There are limits to the IRS's generosity. And so, yes, they are throwing us a teeny tiny little tax bone, which I do think is important to understand, but come find me. We can talk about that later at some point. Really, the primary benefit is tax-free investment growth over time. And that happens no matter what account that you use and so retirement account specifically. And so don't get hung up on this account decision because the most important aspect 
of any sort of investment account, whether or not it's a retirement account or not, is that it's getting used, is that money is going into it. And so a Roth IRA is a really great starter option for those of you who are entrepreneurs and you qualify for one, graduating to doing both like a Roth and a solo 401k or a Roth and a SEP IRA is something that you could aspire to as you start to have more income coming in. And then if you wanted to invest for purposes that aren't retirement, that's totally fine too. But don't do it within a retirement account. Do it within a regular investment account, which we often say is a brokerage account. A brokerage account is just an account that you would open at a brokerage bank. I think that the word brokerage kind of trips people up a little bit. And so I just like to remind them that like back in the day, if you wanted to buy a stock or buy an investment, you literally had to go to a guy and be like, hey, homie, I was wondering if I could buy 10 shares of XYZ stock. Can you help me out? That person is a stockbroker. That person would literally have to turn around and go and broker that deal. They would have to find somebody to sell that stock so that they can then sell it to you. So nowadays... All of that trading happens behind the scenes on the internet, but we still need a brokerage bank to help us facilitate those trades. And so that's why Bank of America is different than Fidelity. Fidelity is a brokerage bank. And so a regular brokerage account is basically just a non-retirement investing account. And so if you want to invest for retirement, great first goal, use a retirement account. If you want to invest for something that's not retirement, totally fine too use a brokerage account. And so that's the first step. The second step is funding that account. So usually moving money in from your checking account. And then step three, we do not want to forget about our beautiful third step, which is actually buying investments with that money. And so for example, a fan favorite of finance experts is using index funds that will get you broad exposure to the stock market, to the international stock market, to the bond markets, to get you completely diversified over the majority of our investment markets is a really cheap, easy way to get invested. But what's important is that you do understand that you are now invested in the stock market and your funds are going to perform ideally exactly like the stock market, which is great over the long term, but you do have to understand that that is going to come with some short-term volatility. We can have very bad years in the stock market. And that's We're just, having a couple of bad weeks right now. <laughs> right. And you cannot be bothered by it. You have yeah. to stay cute, stay completely unbothered, keep your eye on the process as opposed to any sort of short-term results, because the reality is the market is up and down in the short term. That is the risk. And in the world of investing, risk and reward are always two sides of the same coin. You don't get to have a whole bunch of return without risk. And in fact, if anybody ever promises you an investment that is all reward and no risk, what is that? You mean we shouldn't be buying Dogecoin? <laughs> well, and like, here's the thing is like, it is extremely high risk, but like, hopefully people are understanding that if you buy it, you got to understand that the value could very easily go to zero just as easily as it could go up. And it's up to you to decide how much risk you want to take. And so, yes, it is so fun to talk about cryptocurrency and NFTs and stonks and whatever it is. But the reality is good investing is breathtakingly boring. And that should make up the majority of what you are doing. And so if that means just 
constantly buying shares of index funds in your Roth IRA, guess what? It's not glamorous, but like someday it will be. <laughs> someday you'll get to right those, those bad granny dreams. But yeah, those are some really easy ways just to get started. Another way that is really easy to get started is to simply use a robo-advisor service. Mm -hmm. And so if what I just explained is something that you want nothing to do with, that's okay. You can use a service where basically the trade-off of using like, let's say like a Betterment or really any robo-advisor service, all robo-advisors are more or less providing the exact same service. And that service is buying you a portfolio of index funds and those index funds hold stocks and they hold bonds. And so you are invested in the stock and bond markets through index funds. It's just that they're helping you buy them. And so the robo-advisor question basically boils down to, do I want to buy the index funds myself or do I want Betterment to buy them for me and I will pay them for holding my hand? Yeah. And that's totally fine. If that's, if that's what you need to get started, they're all offering a fine service and it is certainly better to use a robo advisor than to sit on your hands and do nothing at all. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most is like the over analysis of where to open these accounts or like what to freaking buy. Like it's not that complicated, y'all. Like it just doesn't have to be. And I would argue that as a business owner, the last fucking thing that you need to be doing is becoming like a part-time day trader because you have enough shit to do. So just automate your freaking index investing and fucking go make some money like so that you can keep making this a reality. We don't need to get caught up in the nuance. Absolutely. And especially as a young investor, as a new investor, the most important thing that you do is actually invest. Again, like this is something I've already said, but there is one variable that we can control and that is how much money we apply to the market. We cannot control the market. We cannot control what is going to be the most successful company in the next 10 years. Who will be the next Amazon? We can't control that. And so I actually like, especially when I'm teaching very tired, busy women, moms, really any, like anybody that's just tired. I'm like, this is actually the best news you could hear all year. Whereas some parts of money management do require pretty regular, like budgeting is hard. Like budgeting is hard, hands-on work, but investing actually doesn't have to be. And so what you should do is release yourself of feeling like you need to control it because you can't. The only thing that you can do is get money into the market and apply your money to the market for as long as possible, knowing that these companies that we're going to be investing in within the stock market, because that's what a stock is, the longer we give them, the better off that we're going to be. We want to give them ample time to create additional wealth in the world so that our little piece of the pie will also reflect that new value. I love it. Excellent advice. And so I want to continue to pick your brain around what we can do as entrepreneurs to really set ourselves up for success, right? So I think self-care is an important thing that everybody needs to focus on. And especially this concept of financial self-care, like as an entrepreneur, some of the things that I believe are financial self-care are like charging what the fuck you want to get paid because these bills are real. Okay. So charging more than you probably feel comfortable for. I think it's self-care and also investing for myself is absolutely self-care. 
having an emergency fund. What else for you like looks like financial self-care as a business owner? Well, I do think that as much as I encourage people to invest and to think about retirement, the first thing that you have to do is make sure that you are financially stable right now, especially after going through this pandemic. It is okay to want to feel comfortable with the amount of money that you have in your bank account, knowing that the nature of work for all of us, not just entrepreneurs, but especially entrepreneurs, is very tenuous, right? It it can feel like it could all be ripped out from under you in the blink of an eye. And so maybe for you, that would mean having not only a personal emergency fund, but having one for work as well, or maybe even having one for family as well. And so that's a big one. Don't feel pressured into investing if you're not ready. I saw what a market crash did to people in 2008. I mean, grown ass men who had figured out ways to make millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars, absolutely losing their shit in a, during a stock market crash. And so I know that it can have a, a real psychological impact on people to be an investor. I mean, there's really a couple of things that you can do to be prepared to take this financial self-care that you're talking about. And the first of those things is to have enough cash cushion where you really can look away from your investments. And the second is to understand what causes volatility. I can tell you it's normal and natural, but if you don't actually understand why, then it's going to be hard to deal with. And it's also going to be hard to deal with if you're not preparing yourself for how it will feel when we encounter that moment. Because guess what? There are going to be more market crashes in our lifetime. That's all but a guarantee. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes Elon Musk tweeting is enough for the market to go batshit crazy. And that's the fundamental understanding that I think a lot of us have to have is that while there's a lot of data that you can scour through to make a good investment, the stock market is also controlled by humans. And humans are irrational and they're emotional and they're fucking stupid. And it's just part and parcel with the game. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to expound on that point, because I think it's really important and not to get like too technical about it, but what we are experiencing with the stock market, which is nothing more than a marketplace for stocks, is that we see real-time updates on what the price or the value of these stocks are Again, and it's happening in real time, which doesn't happen in other marketplaces, right? Like you don't walk into a coffee shop and see the value or the price of a hot coffee or an iced coffee change based on how much somebody is buying or selling one or the other. And so because that does happen in the stock market, it does play a little bit of a trick on our brains. Like, can you imagine if that was like the way that it was like with the real estate market where every house had a ticker above it at oh all times God. telling you what the value of it, it I mean, I guess feels like, like that right Zillow, now, <laughs> Zillow, but like, uh, which is a little bit wild. But, you know, with the stock market, especially we're getting updates every 15 seconds on what the value is and what is causing the price of these stocks to change is buying and selling and buying and selling, like you said, is not always rational. In fact, it isn't rational. And so that is what is driving the stock market primarily in the short term. And so by, by buying and selling, what I'm saying is basically supply and demand, right? If a bunch of people buy into a stock, GameStop anybody, then that is the mechanism that pushes the price higher, right? Demand is increasing. And so you can charge more for something, right? 
when demand is increasing. So that pushes the price higher. And then the reverse is also true. If let's say, I don't know, Elon Musk puts a puppy in a wood chipper. I don't know. That was weird. I'm looking at your dog. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know, that, right? That, you know, so cute. That causes people to be like, fuck this guy. We're bailing out of his stock. And that is what causes the price to drop. And so the next time we are in a market crash, you have to remember that it is not necessarily because the companies that you own in your portfolio are broken. It is because investors are selling stocks across the board because they are panicked about something that probably isn't going to last forever, frankly. And so 2008 was a really good example of that. But you know, it's important to keep in mind when you're investing is that this type of panic it doesn't last forever, right? And you also just got to remember it is caused by us, the investors. The call is coming from inside the house. Y'all, we did this. And so it helps to keep it in perspective and to also remember that I think that we don't do a very good job of describing the markets because we call them good or bad markets. But in reality, a bad market, a market crash is incredibly good if you are trying to buy shares of companies. Right. And so if we experience a market crash and we think we have way more investing ahead of us than behind us, then that's what we need to focus on is continuing to buy more shares at these more depressed levels. And so like I once got asked a question, they were like, well, what if we actually do get some pretty major fallout, economic fallout from the pandemic? And we have like a really, really bad market for the next 10 years, which it's actually quite common to have a kind of lackluster 10-year period after a very bountiful 10-year period. And we just had a very bountiful last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so it's not unreasonable to think that we could have a kind of shitty next 10 years in the market, but that would be an incredible opportunity for all of us to be constantly buying shares and buying shares at lower price levels, right? The market being good or bad is only relative to the position for which you view the market. So if you are trying to retire off this money, it's bad if the market <laughs> crashes. If you are trying right. to collect shares, it's good. It's so important to keep that long-term perspective, right? Because we shouldn't be investing anything we need in the next, I think, five years at the minimum. That's kind of the rule of thumb that I tend to follow. So focus on the long-term, guys, because fucking Twitter... We'll make the stock market lose thousand points in a day because of some stupid shit. So, <laughs> okay. So what advice do you have for someone who's like ready to get control of their finances and really just is overwhelmed with how to even get started? My first tip would be is to build out that financial cushion, that emergency cushion, and you don't have to overthink it. Just keep it in whatever savings account you have available to you. That's literally it. Yes. There are going to be ways that you can optimize your money moving forward, but so much of it is noise. Really, what you need to do is build a, a financial infrastructure that works for you. And the number one place to start is by having a savings account that works for you. And it should be separate than your checking account because like, Lord knows if I have money that is anywhere near my checking account, I'm going to get my grubby little paws on it. I just am. I'm going to spend it and I know myself. And so I have to move it into a savings account that is separate from my checking account. And so that's a good place to get started. Working on paying off your credit card debt is another really great place to get started. And as you are working on those two 
I would say first most important financial goals, then just to start to familiarize yourself with investing terminology. And the great news is that there are more people like you and I that are doing this work in trying to democratize this information and, and truly trying to make this information enjoyable that exists out there than ever before. You know, we're doing a lot of free work. We're doing a lot of low priced work. And so find somebody whose voice resonates with you and take their workshops and take their courses and also know that it's okay to admit that the old ways of learning about finance aren't working, right? Like if you have some personal finance book or investing books sitting on your nightstand that has been collecting dust for the last five years, it's okay to admit that you don't want to read it because who does? And the good news is I read them all so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. I love it. And you know, it reminds me because when I was first starting to like want to learn about this stuff, I would take books out of the library and I thought I was just going to be able to convince myself to digest some of this shit. And some of it's just so boring. <laughs> like there's no fucking way I can get through this and I have to accept it. Okay. This is not the messenger for me. I got to figure out some other shit. I've discovered podcasts. I'm like, okay, this works. So it's not like a one size fits all to this approach of educating yourself. Like just because somebody's recommending to read the fucking millionaire next door doesn't mean that that's the book for you. Like mm -hmm. find the medium, find the personality, find the content that is going to actually motivate you, speak to you, because there's so many options out there now. Truly. Okay. Last question before we wrap this up. What is your money mantra? So I'm going to give a money mantra that is related to just what we were talking about. And it is that learning to be good with money doesn't have to suck. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Doesn't. Right? Like it's not easy work. And it's going to require effort, but we can have fun. We can laugh. We can learn about ourselves. And if I had to double up on that mantra, what I would say is that learning to be good with money doesn't mean that you have to be obsessed with money either. Yes. Such an important message. Amanda, this has been an amazing conversation. I just love your unique take on this personal finance space, this weird ass space that we've managed to find ourselves in. <laughs> I love the levity that you bring to the topic and just you make it approachable. And so for folks that want to find out more about you, follow your journey, join your workshops, the whole thing, where is the best place for us to find you? So it mostly goes down on Instagram at dumpster.doggy. You'll never forget. <laughs> I am on the other socials as well. I'm trying to be on TikTok, although I am an elder millennial. I am on TikTok at dumpster.doggy, so you can find me there. Um, yeah, that's that's where most of it goes down. And like you said, I've got workshops coming up all of the time. Would love to, it would be an honor to be your teacher. And so would love to see some of you there. Absolutely. And we will go ahead and pop the links to your upcoming events and everywhere people can find you in the show notes. So again, thank you so much for being here. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start. That's yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.